If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 46. Isaiah chapter 46. Um, many weeks ago, when I preached Isaiah chapter 1, I said something like, we're going to look at Isaiah together until we finish or until God tells me to do something different. Um, that's still the plan. So... We are just now getting to some of the really good stuff. The book of comfort, Isaiah chapter 40 and beyond. So do you need his comfort? I know I do. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 46 um, this morning. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed in the bulletin. You can grab one of the pew Bibles, pull out your phone. Just don't check your text messages, preferably. Without further ado, hear God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. Into gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down in worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it the mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I will bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let's pray. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Be with us now. Be our help right now. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think God is calling me to walk by faith right now, but I hate walking by faith. I once said that to my friend Jeff, a fellow pastor, and even though God proved his faithfulness afterwards, I still rarely pray like this, dear Lord... I need to walk by faith more often. Please give me more uncertainty in my life. Now, maybe I haven't learned my lesson, or maybe we're all like this. 
Maybe we all want tangible security, the kind that we can see, taste, touch, smell, feel, and we can't see God, children's catechism, but he always sees me. And see, this is why idols are so appealing. Idols back then and now are things we trust instead of God or more than God. That could be something as small as the lucky t-shirt you wear during a football game. Not that I know anything about that. But if we will do that for football games, then what kind of idolatry do we practice about the things that really matter in life? What will we do to game the system for rewards at work, for compensation, for recognition? What will we do to earn someone's love and respect, to acquire that forbidden pleasure, to gain freedom, to get that Instagram picture of myself, my food, my family, or my living room? What will we do to get it looking just right? You see, if I think I have to do or get certain things for my happiness, for my value, then maybe I doubt whether God can provide them for me. That was Israel's problem. They had a gracious God who longed to be gracious to them, who told them in, in returning and in rest is your salvation, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and in trust is your hope, Isaiah 30. But they were unwilling. They were restless. They had not found their rest in him, so they had to do something, something, to fix the mess they were in, the mess that they had created. You know, they had mighty nations from the east bearing down on them, threatening to take them over, so what would they do? Well, sometimes they trusted in foreign nations to deliver them. If we just hitch our wagon to those guys, then they'll save us. Sometimes they trusted in the foreign gods. Well, we'll pray to Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord Almighty. We'll do that. But, but it's okay if we burn some incense to another God too. What, what could it hurt? Well, what will their God do about all that? Well, first off, he won't worry or fret as if this was not part of his plan. No, instead, God will expose the weakness of their idols so that they can embrace his glorious salvation. He'll expose the idols for what they really are, and he'll expound upon his greatness and superiority. We see that today in four points. First off, we see the God who carries our burdens. The God who carries our burdens, the first four verses. Who carries whom? It's the question that this section begs us to ask. Will the idols we serve, will they carry our burdens for us, verses one and two. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. How much do you know about Bell and Nebo? Not much. Don't worry, that was me a few weeks ago, but they're idols of Babylon, the nation that would conquer and enslave Israel soon, soon to come. And, and when I say Israel, more specifically, it's Judah, the southern kingdom. And Bel was the chief god. Nebo was his son, the patron of wisdom and writing. And every year, Nebo would, according to someone else, write on the tables of destiny the fates decreed by the gods for the coming year. It all happened on New Year's Day when they carried him and Bell 
through the streets. And the vision that Isaiah gives here, it's, it's, it's familiar to that, but, but different, right? Uh, they're still being carried, but it's not a festive celebration because the gods are fat, weighing down the animals that carry them through the streets. Why? What's Isaiah saying? He's saying these idols you trust are dead weight. They can't do anything. You carry them. They can't carry you and your weighty burdens. Moreover, notice this, the God who was supposed to write the fate for the coming year, which may have involved a bit of astrology and all that, he is walking into captivity himself, verse 2 says, he doesn't see it coming. Babylon, who enslaved Israel, mighty Babylon will be enslaved themselves, and Nebo, the God of wisdom, doesn't see it coming. What good are these gods? Who is carrying whom? Bel and Nebo can't carry you. You have to carry them. And modern idols are the same. Success, good image, riches, freedom, love, respect, or the leader who promises you all those things and more. They can't lift you up out of the muck and mire of life. They can't provide the lasting satisfaction you're looking for. How could anyone or anything do that in a fallen world like ours? It would take something, someone who's otherworldly, out of this world, to do all that, right? Wouldn't it? Verses 3 and 4, listen to me, O house of Jacob. All the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. Keep in mind, Isaiah not talking about himself. No, sir. If anyone talks like this, I am the only one who can save you. Then they are making themselves out to be a god. They are asking you to worship an idol. No, Isaiah is talking, of course, as God's mouthpiece. If you look at Isaiah 45, verse 1, 11, 14, 18, it makes it all clear. This is thus saith the Lord kind of stuff, right? And what is God saying to his people? He's saying, you thought that Bel and Nebo could deliver you? No, remember my word. Look to the future. All the nations who rage will be bowed down and humbled before me. As they rage, God laughs. Because God knows the final outcome in at least two senses of the word. One, every mighty nation will become weak one day. Babylon, who crushed Judah, they're going to be crushed by Cyrus and the Persian Empire one day. And then secondly, the last mighty nation will ultimately be replaced by a heavenly kingdom, a final kingdom. And so our job is to pray for that, to wait for that, to live like citizens of that kingdom. In Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount shows us, tells us how to do that, live as citizens of God's kingdom. Your gods can't carry you. They can't lift up the burden of this world. Only the God who created this world can pick it up and put it back together again. Only he can fix the brokenness. Only he can carry you until that day. And if you are the remnant, those who cling to God's grace instead of the world's false promises, then he will carry you 
through the brokenness and the pain of your sin, the sins of others. Who carries whom? The idols don't carry anyone. They get carried, and they are a crushing weight for those who carry them and cling to them. Who carries whom? Well, God carries you if you are his child. God carries you from womb to tomb, from cradle to grave, from no hair until gray hair, and then no hair again. God carries you. He has. He is. He will. Verse 4, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. He carried Noah through the flood. He carried baby Moses in another ark. He carried all of Israel out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness. And now as exile awaits, God promises to keep carrying his people. Trust his track record, my friends. And while you're at it, compare it to the competition. See that in verse 5. Success, image, riches, freedom, love, respect. The leader who promises it all. Have they ever let you down? Chances are they have. And even if not, even if they haven't yet, God says they will. Just like Nebo and Bel. Because we carry idols. They don't carry us. We make them into whatever we think they are. But no one made God. He made us. And he promises to carry us with all of our burdens, all of our sins. Why is God superior to the idols? Because he's the God who carries our burdens, first of all. He is also, secondly, the God who saves us from our distress. The God who saves us from our distress, verses 5 through 7. Who saves whom? Who saves whom? Do, do the gods who need to be pulled with the horse trailer, do they save anyone? Verse 2, uh, no, they cannot save, it says. What about the God who drags his people along to glory? Verse 4, we've read it several times. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. <clears throat> Can false gods really do anything? That's what we're talking about. The ancient ones or the modern ones? Can they hold a candle to God? Can they compare to his saving power? Verse 5, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? And then God, as I said, he examines the competition. What are these, what are these other gods really like? See, back then, false gods were often made into idols, carved images to represent their supposed powers. For example, the Philistines who lived by the Mediterranean Sea, they served the god Dagon. Probably looked like a fish, but with hands, not really sure. Because he was the god of the sea. Problem was, good old Dagon kept falling over. If you don't believe me, read 1 Samuel 5 for some Old Testament satire. But again, they were images. They were just sculptures. Man-made sculptures. Look at verse 6, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They fall down and worship. He wants you to see how stupid, absurd, and ridiculous this is. Why would anybody worship a thing that they themselves had made? Can gods be made? But we do this, don't we? 
We make things mean something more than what they really do. Derek Thomas explains, everyone lives for something. Something that captures our hearts and imaginations. These are the things we dream of because they give us hope, encouragement, and the prospect of a better tomorrow. He gives examples, biblical ones. Adam and Eve thought life would be better if they just tasted the forbidden fruit. Abraham and Sarah thought life would be better if they acquired a son. Sooner rather than later, preferably. Thank you, Hagar, for your help. Jacob. Jacob wanted his father's love. So much so that he fooled him into blessing him. And when that backfired and he had to run for his life from his brother, he wanted someone's love, anyone's love. So he worked seven years for his dream girl, only to be fooled, turn about his fair play, fooled by his father-in-law, only to work seven years more. In case you've forgotten, his future home life wasn't the happiest. His idols didn't fulfill him. Do you see what those people did? All those people, they built idols in their minds out of other things. If I get this thing, then I will be happy. Maybe that thing is tangible, like an apple or a sun. Maybe it's not, like someone's love or respect. Maybe it's an inherently good thing, like the sun that God promised, that we begin to love a little bit too much. We may not physically build an idol out of gold or silver or wood or stone, but we're still making idols. We're still worshiping a made thing, inherently flawed, weak, less than its maker, as someone says. As John Calvin famously said, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. So we need perpetual reminders of how weak and foolish our idols are. Verse 7. They lift it, the idol, the image. <clears throat> they lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. And it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer. Or save him from his trouble. Will your success save you? When tragedy strikes. What about a perfect image? Riches? freedom, or someone who promises you all those things. No, because they're not like God. They are not his equal. They are not the maker and sustainer of life. They're not the redeemer we long for. They're just a shadow of it. Pale imitation. Our modern gods and idols are really no more sophisticated than the ancient ones that were made of wood and stone. No more powerful either. There's still, I think it's Isaiah 40 that says there's still an illusion, a lie, a false promise, a distraction from the God whose promises never fail. The God who saves us from our distress. And he is also, thirdly, the God who declares our future. The God who declares our future. You see that in verses 8 through 11. Who declares what? <clears throat> who declares what is going to happen? Who declares our future? You see, we sometimes act like forces beyond our control declare and determine our future. Actually, that's true. Some of you are thinking, huh, good. But we also act like forces beyond God's control declare and determine our future, don't we? For example, inflation is just 
crippling. My earning power is bottoming out. What's the implication when we say and think things like that? God can't provide. The government made this new law. God can't protect my freedom. My kid didn't make the grade. So my dream school for him, think about that for a second, my dream school for him or her will never accept him. He won't get a marketable degree or a good career. It's the beginning of a downward spiral that God can't stop. Can't, won't, whatever. Isn't it all just doubting God's goodness, his power, maybe both? Who declares what? Who declares our future? Sometimes we act like it's us. Our effort, our success, our skill is all that matters. So double your efforts. Sometimes we act like it's written in the stars by someone other than God himself, similar to the astrology that was common in Babylon's day. Whether we read the horoscopes in the newspaper or not. I haven't read a newspaper in a while. Do they still have horoscopes? In all this, we act like God can't or isn't working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We act like someone else is in control. Maybe we need verses 8 through 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall at the mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is in charge. We know that. We should be comforted by that. Doesn't mean that every detail of his plan is equally comforting to us. If I go back two to three years, I can probably find a list of things that I wish would have turned out differently. I assume you can too. But you know, I have another list I keep as well. A list my wife convinced me to make a count my blessings and name them one by one list, a list of ways that I have seen, can see God's hand at work in my life amidst the cruddy stuff, uh, overruling that crud, if you will. Sometimes it's very practical things like the time my wife convinced me it was time to buy a new car, even though we had no idea that car prices were about to go like that. Little side note for you. I once heard someone say, if you are married, then your spouse will probably be the greatest tool God uses in your sanctification. Amen? I know you're Presbyterians, but come on. <laughs> but amidst the good and the bad, God is still in control. Not something else. Not someone else. He declares the future. He declares your future. Declaring the end from the beginning, it says in verse 10. And then verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. I have spoken, God says. If you've seen The Mandalorian, then you may remember a certain character, voiced by Nick Nolte, who has a unique way of speaking. When he is ready to end a discussion, he simply says, I have spoken. For example, the, the Mandalorian needs help. I can tell by the quizzical looks. No one has seen this TV show, but the five Star Wars fans in the room. So that's fine. Bear with me. 
For example, the Mandalorian needs some help, but he's too proud to ask for it. So the character says, I will help you. I have spoken. Or there's this scene where they're about to take on some fearsome enemy, and he says, we will make quick work of it, and then there will again be peace. I have spoken. Now, it's kind of funny. Take my word for it. Because no one can be that confident all the time, right? But the difference between Queel the Ugnaught and God the Almighty is this. God can back it up. This is not bluster. This is not boasting. This is God telling you how it is. He has spoken. And he will bring it to pass. He will do all that he pleases. He will call a bird of prey from the east. Is that talking about Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus? It's probably the latter, but it doesn't matter. The point is that God holds the heart of the king in the palm of his hand, paraphrasing Proverbs 21.1. God will call, it says, the man of my counsel from a far country. Again, could be Nebuchadnezzar, the one who routed Judah, whom God used to execute his discipline on his rebellious people, or more likely, might be Cyrus, God's ungodly servant, who sent Israel back from exile for Cyrus's own selfish purposes, who in the process fulfilled God's promise to bring his people home. The idols don't declare the future. The predatory kings and nations of the East, they don't declare the future. The impersonal forces that we think can't be stopped, they aren't controlling the future either. God has spoken. God will bring your future to pass. Maybe bumpy at times, an exile here, a setback here, but God will work it together for good if you are called according to his purpose. In other words, if you answer his call and trust his savior, why is God better than the idols, better than all the things we look to, success, riches, freedom, love, respect, certain leaders, why is he better? Because he's the God who declares our future, our good future. He's also, fourthly and finally, the God who draws near to his beloved. The God who draws near to his beloved. Verses 12 and 13. Who draws near to whom? Who draws near to whom? Do our idols draw near to us? Well, not exactly. They tempt us, don't they? They call out to us. That's really the lust of our own hearts, latching on to whatever we can find. It's our perpetual idol factory, seeing part of God's good creation through rose-colored glasses. Do we draw near to our idols? Well, yes, but not in a way that satisfies. No, what we're really trying to say here is this. Does the God who carried us, who saved us, who declares our good future, does he draw near to us? Is that possible? Is that too good to be true? Well, verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. Before God draws near, he might clarify what the problem is to us. See, it's not that he is distant. It's that we are rebellious. We have run far from him looking for some alternative we're far from righteousness, far from his right standard. But God is going to fix that. He will make it right. Verse 13, I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. 
He will bring it near in a way that's unmistakable, can't miss it. His salvation will not delay. We might ask, why has God not delivered me? Why hasn't he helped me out of this thing yet? It's not because he's slow. Second Peter 3 says, what we sometimes call God's slowness is actually God's patience, giving us a chance to repent. You know that old cliche, God is seldom early but never late. He won't delay, but at just the right time, he will put his salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. For Israel, my glory. Lots of good stuff to unpack in this verse, half verse here. First off, when did God put his salvation in Zion? Was that when Cyrus sent all the exiles home to Jerusalem, to Zion? Maybe. And what about when Jesus carried all of our sins to the cross? Also, who is Israel? Well, he's talking. Obviously, he's saying to these people who are listening to him, I have good news for you. But is it only for them? We'll talk about that in a second. But it says here, Israel, they are his glory, Isaiah says. And it's not the usual word for glory, which means heavy and weighty. It's a different word, which means something like beautiful or precious. And so again, who are these precious ones who receive his salvation? If you look at the writings of the Apostle Paul, the book of Romans, chapter 9, he says, not all who were born as Israelites are truly Israelites. And then he'll also say in Galatians 6, the Israel of God, as he says, are those who know that they need God's salvation more than man's salvation, anything that man can do. That's a slight paraphrase. And he goes on to say, the Israel of God are all those who say, with Paul, Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, when you look at all that this world has to offer, every idol, every earthly promise, when you see all of that and you say, I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather have all of his promises, all of his glory, all of his goodness, his faithfulness, his friendship, and more. When you can say, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus, then you know what it is to be part of the Israel of God. Then you know what it is to be one of God's precious beloved ones, his glory. Then you know that God has brought near his salvation to you, then you realize no one else can carry our burdens. No one else can save us from our sin and our distress. No one else can declare and determine our future. And no one else can draw near to satisfy all my needs and to transform all my wants. Bernard of Clairvaux figured all this out about 900 years ago. He said, Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, thou light of life, Thou fount of life, excuse me, thou light of men, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled, unfilled, empty, despite all that the world has to offer, despite all the best things on earth, we turn from the emptiness, we turn unfilled to thee again. Let that be true of us. Let us do the same. Let us pray. <clears throat> 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your many blessings, all of your earthly and temporary blessings. We do not despise them as if they are nothing, but they are indeed signs of your goodness to us and your provision to us. But Father, let us not become obsessed with the gift, however good the gift might be. Let us be obsessed, as it were, consumed with the giver of them all. Father, let us look to you. Let us thank you for all your blessings to us. Let us turn from sin, turn from our idols, and find our true and lasting satisfaction and happiness and blessedness in you. This we ask in Jesus' great name. Amen.